Good morning. Hey, it is great to be back. It was also great to be away, and I'm glad that those two things all work together. We, uh, it was so encouraging. We were t- telling our girls that we weren't going to be able to come or we wouldn't be coming last week, and they got mad at us. So thank you. Thank you for being a church that is supportive of us going away, and thank you for being a church that we're excited to come back to. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad both those things are true. All right, hey, uh, on our way home from, I was, I was away for a couple weeks, uh, on our way home in an airport, I came across a National Geographic special edition that caught my eye because Jesus was on the cover. And I thought, this is going to make for some great airport reading or air, airplane reading because I want to see how they treat a miracle-working, sin-forgiving, prophet, peasant who claimed to be the Son of God. I want to say, what are they going to do with that? So it was fascinating. We did find some common ground. Um, I want to read directly out of this. This is not me embellishing. This is what they said. We both have some common ground that something happened. Something happened in the Middle East 2,000 years ago. Something big. Here's what they say. These are their words. Like billions of other human beings, Jesus of Nazareth, the man, passed through history like a campfire spark, a pinpoint of light here for an instant and then no more. This Jesus, probably called Yeshua in life, left behind no physical trace of his existence, no material works, no writings any more permanent than doodles in the dust. That that is no more, that is no less than any other Jewish peasant living in a remote precinct of the Roman Empire. Yet, the short life and violent death of this obscure Jew took on a meeting meaning that eclipsed the blank pages of his years on earth, filling whole libraries with depictions of what his life produced. Over the ensuing centuries, the religion that grew around him, Christianity, would alter the course of history and become the world's dominant faith with an estimated 2.2 billion adherents today all around the globe. Something happened. Um, if you're a note taker, we provide a little sheet that you can take notes on in your notes. And you might want to write this down, or in your, in your bulletin there. You might want to write this down. Something happened. National Geographic agrees with this. I, we agree with this. Historians agree. Something happened 2,000 years ago, and that something divided history. It was big. It was cataclysmic. It was, it was absolutely huge. Now, where I part ways with this magazine is in their attempt to assess what happened, they, they do what I've frequently seen done. And that is they attempted to separate the historical Jesus from the miracle-working, sin-forgiving, son of God Jesus. They try to say there's the historical Jesus, and then there's this other Jesus. What I want to present to you today is that that is a problematic position to hold. Why? Because what do the most widely circulated, what do the most heavily vetted testimonies coming from that time, what do they say about Jesus? The actual historical documents that we have paint a picture of him as a miracle-working, sin-forgiving man who claimed to be the Son of God. And what we've been doing here for the last couple weeks is we've been looking at one of those documents. If you're not familiar with the Bible, the Bible is a collection of documents, ancient documents. And there's four of them in there that testify to this man, Jesus. Well, all of them you could say do, but there's four of them that provide a narrative of his life. And we've been looking at one of those by a man named Luke. And Luke testifies, as these other 
witnesses do, that the historical Jesus was a miracle worker. And that's what we want to zoom in today. This idea that the historical Jesus was a miracle worker. Now, a document's existence doesn't say anything about its credibility necessarily. And so what we did in week one is we tried to speak to the issue of Luke's credibility. And with the little time that we had, I tried to make a case as best I could that Luke's authorship was uncontested. His scholarship is exemplary. And Luke's narratives continue to be externally verified. I should also say this about Luke if you're writing notes, the one that I skipped there. Luke was a physician. If you're not familiar with him, he was a first century physician. And what he intended to do was he said, I'm going to set out. I'm going to try to provide an orderly account of this man's life. So that was the one that came first and then the one that came second I just gave you. Well, the reason this is particularly fascinating to me is as a former skeptic myself and as someone who started down the path towards becoming a, a doctor, I am intrigued to see how does he deal with miracles? Did he try to do what, what many have done later? Did he try to say, okay, there was the historical Jesus as I checked this out. Here's what really happened and then here are the embellishments. Did he try to divide those... Uh, draw those divisions or not. So I was particularly intrigued to see how a first century doctor who has a proven track record of historical accuracy, how did he deal with miracles, the ones that were attributed to Jesus? Now, one of the things I want to do as we dive in here today is I want to hopefully clear up a popular misconception. Our contemporary world tends to oversimplify and underestimate the capacities of those who've gone before us. They tend to do that. We tend to do that. And one of the condescending caricatures that those living in our modern world tend to paint of the ancients is they paint a broad brush and they say, all those people back then, that should be a warning right there, all those people back then, they were all superstitious, they were all gullible, you know, and they paint that picture. Now, was that true of some? Sure. Is that true of some today? But I want, to, I want to let you know it's not that simple. Um, in my research for, for this week, I, I came across this quote. And this quote, if it doesn't come from the Bible, this quote actually is 200 years before Jesus, dated to 200 years before the time of Jesus. And look at what they say about physicians. There were some folks, there were some folks who looked at doctors and, and looked at the world, and they said things like this. I put these also, there's a, it should be a yellow slip in your notes too, so this, this one's in there. So you can go back and you can... Fact check me if you'd like. Honor physicians for their services. This person writes, for the Lord created doctors. Their gift of healing, it comes from the most high. The skill of physicians makes them distinguished. And in the presence of the great, they're admired. The Lord created those medicines out of the earth. And sensible people will not despise them. Moving on. Give up your faults. Direct your hands rightly. And cleanse your heart from all sin. So basically saying, hey, get right with God. But listen to your doctor. Get right with God, but listen to your doctor. Here's it. You know, offer your, poise, per, your portion of choice flour, pour oil on your offering, but then give the physician their place. God created them. They too pray to the Lord, and he grants them success in their diagnosis and in healing. He who sins against his maker will be defiant towards the physician. That sounds pretty modern to me. In fact, there's millions of people alive today who would say the same things. They would say... Let's not draw a distinction between science and faith. Listen to your doctor and listen to your God. That's basically what at least some folks were saying back then. I believe, especially as I look at at Luke's credibility, 
I believe Luke lived in the world of reality. He lived in a world of cause and effect. And like every good doctor does, Luke remained open as he, as he went to investigate these reports. He remained open. Maybe I'm going to see some things that are hard for me to explain. I'm going to go in with, a, with an open mind. Well, over the course of his re- investigation, Luke got a chance to witness some pretty remarkable things firsthand. Jesus had died and rose again, we believe, uh, in this time before Luke started reporting. But Luke got to see some things with his own eyes. On a ride-along, I'll call it a (laughs) ride-along. It's a very simplification here. But during a ride-along with Paul, we we find this account. Take a look at this. This is from the book of Acts, chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible, too, we want to let you know that we keep a stack of them each week on those tables. They're there for you to keep. And so please take one of those home if you don't have a Bible at home. All right, this is from what's called the book of Acts. This is attributed also to Luke. And he's, here's, here's an account where Luke uses the word we. Luke was there for this one. So Luke got a chance to see this with his own eyes. This is after the time of Jesus. Luke is doing a ride-along for a very simplistic uh, uh, way to, to call this that. All right, here we go. Uh, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with these people that he was talking with, intending to depart the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. And a young man named Lucky, your Bible probably doesn't say Lucky, but one of my my sources said that if you were to do the meaning of that name, it's Lucky, which has got some irony here, as you're about to see. So a young man named Lucky. He was lucky was sitting in the window, and Lucky sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked on over and over and over again. All right, so we've got Luke putting himself in this, this account. He says, I was there for this one. There was this guy named Lucky, and here's what happened. So Paul is talking on and on and on, not that any of you could ever relate to that ever happening. Um, so Lucky is overcome by sleep, and he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Now, Luke didn't write he was taken up as dead. This is Luke, the doctor, saying, I was there. This is a wee thing. I'm telling you, Lucky died in the fall. So he's taken up dead. And Paul, then it continues on, it says, Paul went down to him. He bent over Lucky, taking Lucky up in his arms. He said, don't be alarmed, for his life is in him. And then it moves on in verse 12. They took the youth away alive. And then in a very understated phrase says, Uh, We were not just a little comforted by that. All right. There's more here than a cautionary tale for long-winded communicators. In his ride-along, although point taken, I got it. All right. In his ride-alongs with followers of Jesus, Luke witnessed a power. Luke witnessed a power, and he didn't ascribe this power to Paul. He didn't ascribe this power to Peter. He didn't ascribe this power to Stephen. He, he didn't describe this power to any of the people through whom this unique power was at work. Luke attributes this power to an authority that came from Jesus of Nazareth. Let's look at an example of this. Here's an example of a healing that Luke attributes to Jesus of Nazareth. This is found in Luke chapter 5, starting with verse 17. On one of those days, as Jesus was teaching, Pharisees, teachers of the law, were sitting there who had come from every village in Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was on him to heal. Now, in setting all this up, I find this fun. Luke employs some wordplay. 
Luke is about to teach the teachers of the law through both his words and his actions. And the text says that the power of the Lord was on Jesus to heal. And I want to just say something as crazy as it sounds to the modern minds. This isn't the power of suggestion. This isn't, I think my head hurts a little bit, and now I think it doesn't. Look at some of the miracles that are attributed by Luke to Jesus. Here's a partial list. Leprosy, paralysis, a withered hand, an immediate end to 12 years of bleeding, dropsy, blindness, a severed ear, and death. How does a modern mind wrap itself around miracles like these? What I would like to present to you today is that your modern mind already has categories for this. It already has categories for this. And the correct category is not magic. The correct category is not a performance. The correct category is not some group hysteria that that people think they saw something they saw. I want to present to you that there's a different paradigm. I put a quote in your uh, Purple Note page by C.S. Lewis, and, and he writes this. He says, Miracles are a retelling in small letters of the very same story which is written across the whole world in letters too large for some of us to see. We have categories for miracles. And so I would encourage you to write this down, and then let me talk about it a little bit. Not on and on and on, hopefully. The, the scriptures, I believe the scriptures don't frame miracles as disruptive or disconnected to the natural order of things. I don't think it's like magic. I don't think it's something that, that, is, that is mysterious in that sense. I believe that miracles, biblical miracles, are framed as the creation responding rightly to its creator. That's a biblical miracle. When we see a legitimate, God-directed miracle, we're not looking at magic. We're not looking at a performance. We're not looking at a properly executed incantation. Aha, I got the spell right, and now it works. I prayed the prayer the correct way, and now it works. I want to present to you it's not like that. It's more like having a smartphone that has voice recognition. If you took that smartphone to some place where they've never seen voice recognition, you speak to that smartphone, and it, and it does what you ask it to do, people go, oh, magic. That's not how it works, does it? We have a category for this. The, the creation is just doing what it was designed to do. And so when the creator speaks to it, it responds as it was designed to respond. Um, for a deeper read than we can you know, discuss here this morning, I want to highly, highly, highly recommend C.S. Lewis, Lewis' book, Miracles. He does a great job diving into this topic and, and goes to places that we don't have time to go today. But let me give you a little excerpt from his book. Here's a, a little quote. I believe I put this one on your yellow page as well, so you can take, take it home and digest a little bit. In regards to miracles, our whole picture, C.S. Lewis says, of nature being invaded by a miracle as if by a foreign enemy, it's wrong. When we actually examine one of these invasions, one of these miracles, it looks more like the arrival of a king among his own subjects. For observing what happens when nature obeys, it is almost impossible not to conclude that it has her very nature to be a subject. All happens as if she had been designed for that very role. When God speaks and a miracle happens, 
It's just nature doing what it was designed to do. And perhaps some of us have been looking at miracles through the wrong lens. What if miracles aren't invasions into the real world? What if miracles are glimpses of how things really are? Or how things really should be? Or how they will be in an age to come when all is as it should be? Let me tell you something else that your modern mind already knows. There is a sense in which no doctor ever heals. The body appears to have been designed to miraculously heal itself. Sutures and casts and medicines, they're not magic, nor do they even heal in the technical sense. Stitches and crutches and pills enable a body to do what the body was designed to do. There is also a sense in which wheat and fish miraculously multiply on their own every day. Place a few wheat seeds in the ground, put a few fish in the sea, and they will miraculously multiply until you have enough flail fish to feed 5,000 people. Now here's what the Bible does. It builds on this. It builds on that which we observe, that which we see every day. The Bible builds on it. And the Christian doctrine says of Jesus... In him we live and we move and we have our being. Acts 17, 28. If Luke's narrative on Jesus' life is correct, this power that is evident around us every day, this power to heal, this power to multiply, it is subject to Jesus of Nazareth. That power that we see every day to heal, to multiply, it is subject to Jesus, to his commands. When Jesus placed his hands on the sick, they were healed. When Jesus broke bread and fish, he fed 5,000. Biblical miracles are framed as creation rightly responding to its creator. Let's continue on with our reading. Luke chapter 5, starting, we're going back to that, starting with, uh, picking up with verse 18. All right, so Jesus is, the power of Jesus is on to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring this man in and lay him before Jesus, but they found no way to bring him in because of the crowd. So they went up on the roof. They let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. Now, I want to go off on a quick tangent here, a quick tangent. Again, this stuff maybe I find more fascinating than many of you, but as a former skeptic, as a former pre-med student, I find this interesting. I find it interesting that Luke... The doctor uses a technical Greek term there. There were other common, more common for, uh, words that you could use for someone who, was, who had a disability. He used one that was actually found in other uh, physicians' writings of the day. So I find that interesting. Secondly, there are some people who try to discredit Luke because of words like the word he used for tiles. Some people try to build this whole case because they say, ah, Luke says there were tiles, and in that time and at that place, nobody used tiles. Well, talk about, first of all, talk about missing the forest for the trees, you know, but, but let's go there for a minute. Let's go to that place. Uh, I found sources, other sources, that would contend with that. They said, yes, in that time, at that place, in the house of a wealthy person, you would find tiles. But more than that, there also was another source that said one of the ways that they made their clay roofs is they would take clay and they would form it into a tile-like form on the ground. They would take those pieces up and put them on their roof. So not only is there evidence that tiled roofs at that time and in that place were there, 
Not only is the roof, and the roofing process at that time in that place often involved making individual slabs of mud that were baked in the sun on the ground and then placed in the roof in a tile-like fashion. It can be argued, therefore, that Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he chose both a technically accurate word as well as a word that could be easily envisioned in the wider Greco-Roman culture that this narrative would spread to. And none of that really matters because it's all peripheral. And sometimes you'll see this. People who want to discredit the main thing will go off on these tangents. But even these tangents, sometimes you don't have a strong uh, foundation to stand on. All of that is peripheral to this. It's peripheral to what Jesus says next. Here's what the Jesus of history says, at least recorded history. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. When Jesus saw their faith, when he saw these people lowering this person down whose body was broken, the words coming out of his mouth were, friend, your sins are forgiven. This verse is about it is astounding in a number of ways. First of all, do you notice that it says, when Jesus saw their faith, don't let that one just pass you by. Can you pray for your friends? Yeah. Can you pray for your family? Yeah. Can you pray for your teammates and your coworkers and your, your classmates? Yeah. Can we pray for each other? Yeah. So that's one thing I want to point out. Secondly, if I'm not mistaken, this is the first use of the word faith in all of Luke's writings. He's going to use that word, faith, he's going to use that word at about 30 more times. This is when he introduces it. And notice when he introduces it, what he does with it. When, when he introduces this key word, faith, he introduces it in a community context. Here are these people, a community who've gathered around a broken person, and in faith, they brought him. So there's a community piece to faith when it's introduced by Luke. And not only that, there's not just the community context. Faith is associated with action when it shows up. When faith is introduced by Luke, who does things extremely intentionally, when faith is introduced by Luke, it is not introduced as a thought. It is not introduced as an intention. It is digging a hole in a roof and lowering a broken body down before him. So a couple of key things there. Well, in addition to this, in addition to Jesus responding to their faith, in addition to Luke attaching a community and an action element to faith as he introduces the word, look at what Jesus says. He says man, but in this context, the word man can be translated as friend. He says, friend, your sins are forgiven. The Jesus that actual historical documents refer to, at least the most widely circulated, the most carefully vetted ancient documents, they testify to a miracle worker and a miracle worker in the most profound sense. Luke is one of several first century witnesses who claim that Jesus could heal both body and soul. Earlier, I used an analogy. Here's why this matters. Earlier, I used an analogy with a voice-activated smartphone. If we get biblical with that analogy, it's more than that. If we get biblical with that analogy, Siri can say, no. 
Siri can pull a Terminator. Siri can pull a Hal from 2001 Space Odyssey. Siri can say, I'm not opening the door. Siri can say, hasta la vista, or attempt to say, hasta la vista, baby. In the biblical worldview, the creation has rebelled against its creator. And sometimes it says no, at least for a period of time. It'll be able to do so. God values freedom. God has granted us the responsibility to make choices. And when humanity chose disobedience, we opened up a Pandora's box of hurt. We unleashed darkness. We unleashed evil that now permeates even our most noble intentions. The Bible refers to this rebellion as sin. And we stand in need of forgiveness of sin if we're going to be truly made whole. C.S. Lewis says this in his book, Miracles. Listen to this. He says, everything looks as if nature, when it says no, everything looks as if nature were not resisting an alien invader, but rebelling against a lawful sovereign. And I want to present to you that skeptics agree with this. Unless you are a to-the-letter atheist who says there is no morality, there is no right and wrong, skeptics agree with this. Why do I say that? Because I've talked to so many skeptics who say there's a problem with evil. Evil and God are not compatible, they say. I say they're agreeing with C.S. Lewis if they say that. Because there's something within them, there's something within us that says if creation is out of alignment with its creator, the creator, if he's good and great, should fix it. Right? Isn't that the problem of evil? Something within us says if it's broken, it should be fixed. If there's a creator who is both great and good, he should make things right. He should fix what's broken. He should punish those who do evil. He should protect those who are innocent. Lewis nails it. If there is a creator, miracles make sense. If there is a creator who is good and great, miracles are not an embarrassment. They are essential. They're essential, aren't they? Miracles aren't an embarrassing addendum to an otherwise plausible religion. Miracles are essential to the integrity of the Christian faith. I believe Tim, while I was gone, he said, um, he talked about how there were some people and Jesus didn't meet their categories. They wanted to throw them off the cliff. If you throw the miracle-working Jesus off a cliff, you're left with a Jesus who history doesn't testify to. It's a, it's a Jesus that you've reimagined based on your, your, your constructs. I present to you, miracles are a glimpse of an age to come. An age when the king does return and he puts an end to the rebellion. And he casts all sickness, he casts all death, he casts all rebellion from his kingdom. That day hasn't come yet, and literally, thank God it hasn't, because we have a chance now to confess our rebellion. We have a chance to be saved. We have a chance to say, forgive me, and to have our sins pardoned. God is gracious enough to do that. Because God is both loving and just, he has provided an opportunity for rebels like you and me to repent and then to willingly submit to his authority. Those who turn to him in humility and receive his salvation now, we won't be cast out of his kingdom when all the rebels are cast out. Or when we cross from this life into the next and we stand before the righteous judge. If we accept his salvation now, this is what the scriptures present. If we accept his salvation now, we'll be saved then. 
Did the Jesus of history believe he had that kind of authority? Did the Jesus of history believe, I can speak on behalf of the king, and I can tell you your sins are forgiven? According to the records that are the most widely circulated in ancient history, according to the records that are the most carefully vetted records that we have, they all testified the answer to that is yes. He believed that. And here's the thing. He didn't just testify with his words. He wasn't just some person who got up and said, I speak on behalf of God. He didn't only back it up with declarations from his mouth. He backed it up through these signs. And let's continue to read. Here we go. Luke 5, picking up with this account. Verse 21. The scribes, the Pharisees, began to question, all right, this guy just said, your sins are forgiven. Who is this that speaks such blasphemy? You can't speak for God like that. Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them. He said, why do you question your hearts? Which is easier? Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven, which may or may not be proven? Which which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say to this broken body, you stand and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, he said, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately, he rose up before them. He picked up what he had been lying on. He went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they, were, they glorified God, and they were filled with awe. They said, we have seen extraordinary things today. <laughs> they came and went home just more than a little comforted. Right? <laughs> this is the Jesus that history testifies to. This is the one that, that the most widely circulated, the most carefully vetted accounts that we have Testify to. They testify to a man who claimed to have the authority to forgive sins and validated his authority by speaking to that paralyzed, broken body as a general speaks to his lieutenant. And that broken body said, yes, sir. Wow. Luke had undoubtedly met a whole lot of other doctors. He, He probably had met some that were really good, some that were really bad. Some that were really skilled, some that weren't skilled. Some that were just charlatans. I was talking to a guy in the first service, and he said, yeah, some of them were looked at as assassins because you'd send someone to the doctor, and if you didn't like them, he gave the doctor a little bit of money. He made sure they didn't do okay. So were there all kinds of different doctors? Yep. Had Luke ever met a doctor like this? Nope. He hadn't. He had never met another doctor who could heal both body and soul. Luke became convinced God had sent a Savior into our broken and rebellious world. And his report, Luke's report, is good news for all who have ears to hear. That there is more here than someone who just has the power to persuade. Someone that has more than the power to inspire a bunch of future do-gooders. He's saying this is the one. This is the Savior of the world. He has the power to speak authority into what's broken, whether it's body or soul. He has that power. Wow. Wow. Let's continue reading. I, I, I failed to make the connection, I confess. I failed to make the connection that this passage comes next. This is nothing in between. Here's what comes next. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi. We find out in the other sources that his name was also no, known as Matthew. Sitting at the tax booth. 
And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, Levi rose and followed him. And Levi made a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with him. And the Pharisees and the scribes, they grumbled at his disciples and said, Ah, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, come to call the sinners to repentance. This is the Jesus that the most widely circulated, most carefully vetted ancient documents testify to, the great physician. One who is not only able to speak healing into a broken body, he is one who can restore a sinner's broken relationship with God. And this morning as we close, I want to present to you an invitation. This doesn't have to be the close, you know. Every week we have a community of people that will meet with you to pray in faith together. You can come with with your broken body. You can come with your broken relationships. You can come with your broken connection with God, your broken understanding. You can come in your brokenness, and a community of people will come around you and pray with you. And we can't, we don't have magical formulas. We don't have the right words so that if you come with us, we will say the right incantation and then magic will happen and what you want is granted. We can't promise that. What we can promise is we will take you to one who is great and one who is good. That's what we can promise and we will do that with you. We will do that with you. So this morning, I want to encourage you to do that. I also am struck too, um, as we close here, I'm struck by what it says on that cross over there. Save us. Just let's focus on that first part here. Save us. You, you, can, you can call that out in haughtiness. And good luck to you. You can, when it comes to miracles, you can say, if you are God, prove it. You can do that. And, and, I'll, and I'll tell you, as I, as I say almost every other week, there will never be enough proof for you if it's a haughtiness thing. If it's a haughtiness thing, we could, we could say, God, make the light bulbs explode. They explode, and you go, wow, that was cool, nice trick. And we could say, okay, when you go out, may your car disappear, and your car disappears, and, and you go, how did you do that? And, and no matter what we did, no matter what God did, he doesn't operate that way. Because there's never going to be enough proof for a haughty person. So you can do it with haughtiness or you can do it with humility to say, God, I'm truly seeking here. I am truly and sincerely seeking and as best as you can to even pray to this God you may not believe in to say, God, help me to have a truly open mind to this. And you're not going to just see what you're looking for. There's going to be healing. If you follow Jesus, you're going to see healings. You do the ride along with him and his people, you will see healings. You will see physical healing sometimes. And you will see lives, more importantly. Because this world is passing. There's going to be a day this is all gone. Any healing we get right now, it's just temporary anyway. You're going to see relational healing. And the most wondrous miracle of all is a relationship with us and God, that a rebel could be made right with God. So we offer that extension there. And let me offer that extension to all of us as we close. Would you please stand? Let me pray. Pray over us.
Father, there are things we confess. We try, Lord, at least those of us who can muster up the faith through your power of your Holy Spirit. We, 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 we confess there are things that we can't understand. Father, I confess, I don't know how Siri works. Literally, I can't figure that thing out. And, and, and yet, I can believe in faith that someone created this thing and that it does work. If I can't get my head around Siri and Wi-Fi, I can't get my head around how you can speak to a broken body and it's healed. But we have testimonies dating back from the dawn of humanity that you have done these things. And, and, and many, if not most of us in this room, we've seen it with our own eyes. You're still doing it today. Well, Father, we confess it's easier to just say your sins are forgiven than to say, rise and walk. And if you can make people walk, then you can forgive our sins. And so, Father, we ask that you would come, great physician, heal what's broken. If it's our ears that have just been filled with so much lie, then, Lord, give us ears to hear. If it's ears that are just deaf because we want to hear what we want to hear, then give us ears to hear. If it's, if it's eyes that have seen miracle after miracle, whether it's a sunset, whether it's a fish multiplying in the ocean, or whether it is literally something that can be explained no other way, Lord, open our eyes to see. Father, restore what's broken, our eyes, our hearts, our minds, our relationships, and our bodies. Heal us, great physician. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. Holy Spirit, next week. What did Luke do with that? That's where we're going. God bless you. Have a great week.